Hello and welcome to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. We've released over 200 episodes of Beyond Well, and thanks to you, we are now in the top 1% of podcasts. Not to toot our own horn too much. And we're really proud of some of the shows we've done. We have gathered up a few of our best episodes on depression, and we want to make sure you've had a chance to hear them all. But first, we want to thank our sponsor, Active Recovery TMS, your choice for TMS in the Pacific Northwest. There is no reason for anyone to suffer from treatment-resistant depression with the technology of transcranial magnetic stimulation now available and covered by most insurances. For more information or to figure out if you qualify for treatment, go to activerecoverytms.com. This is Beyond Well, highlighting past episodes on depression. This week, featuring the incomparable Andrew Solomon. Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and I am completely delighted today to have as our guest, Andrew Solomon. Andrew is a writer and lecturer on psychology, politics, and the arts. He's the professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University and a frequent contributor to The New Yorker, NPR, and The New York Times. His books have won over 50 awards, including the National Book Award. But the book that drew me to Solomon's work was his memoir, The Noonday Demon, an elegantly written and meticulously researched memoir of depression. I began to feel myself doing less and thinking less and feeling less. It was a kind of nullity, and then the anxiety set in. It's a sensation of being afraid all the time, but not even knowing what it is that you're afraid of. And it was at that point that I began to think that it was just too painful to be alive, and that the only reason not to kill oneself was so as not to hurt other people. Andrew's TED Talk has been viewed nearly 10.5 million times, translated in 33 languages. To say the work that you've done, Andrew, in terms of allowing people to understand the language of depression, um, the reality of how serious it is as a, a potentially fatal illness, I can't, I can't even speak to the number of friends that I have given that talk to and your book to who said, thank you, I now understand my loved one's illness. So I appreciate you being with us. Thank you very much. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I have um, been wanting to ask you this question because as I was trying to pin you down for this interview, you were talking about um, the realities of COVID and quarantine, how it is completely difficult to get any sense of structure or rhyme or reason. Why do you think that is? What is happening with our psychology that is making quarantine so difficult? Well, I think human beings are essentially social animals and that we all thrive on our interactions with others and that to some extent we understand ourselves through the way that we're seen in the eyes of other people. So we need not only the actual mirror in which we um, you know, comb our hair in the morning, but also the kind of larger mirror that's provided by um, the gaze of other people. And most of us have a number of people we love and care about. And the quarantine has brought about two kind of complicated problems, one of which is that isolation and the sense of being cut off from the people in whose eyes to make sense. And the other, which is almost equally difficult, is that many people are in quarantine with members of their family or with a very small group of people. And 
there is a sense that that small uh, group of people, you know, becomes over time stressful to interact with when there's no respite and there's no getting away. So Sartre famously said that hell is other people, and I think hell is also the absence of other people, and I think we're dealing with both of those problems at once right now. Wow, that stuck is with a small group and away from everyone else. That is one of the most brilliant descriptions I have ever heard. I've, I've never heard it summed up more aptly. Um, where are you quarantining? We're quarantining in Rhinebeck, New York, about two hours north of the city, where we have what was previously a weekend place, but where we've been in residence since March. And so you're with your husband and your son, I imagine, right? I'm with my husband, my son, and my husband's best friend who lives with us, who's sort of my son's surrogate grandfather. He's older than my husband and is filled in that role. So, Andrew, I'm very curious about the, the next steps of this quarantine, whether or not you believe that in order for us to maintain some semblance of our mental health, we're going to have to start gradually expanding our quarantine bubbles to include other trusted members of, ours, of our community groups, our, our friends, relatives. The concern is that we've placed a great deal of emphasis on our physical health, which is without doubt better if we remain remote from um, other people and stay in strict isolation. And our mental health, which I think requires a certain amount of interaction with other people. And while I would never want to compromise any of the recommendations that exist in terms of our physical health, because they're obviously absolutely essential, our mental health also requires a certain amount of care and sustenance. Mm -hmm. And there are people who feel adequately connected by the process of having Zoom conversations like the one we're having right now. And there are people for whom that's insufficient. I had a letter a couple of weeks ago now from someone who wrote to me uh, with the story of her best friend who had kept saying, I'm all by myself and I'm finding it so difficult and I'm struggling and I'm feeling depressed and so on, and who finally killed herself. And so I think there are people for whom the isolation can be very toxic. There are people who will die of COVID without even having it because they're dealing with so much isolation. And I think it has to be taken on a case-by-case -case basis. Some people need a small expansion. Some people need a larger expansion. Mm -hmm. I think some of the passion and fury that we've seen just lately in the protests that have taken place since the brutal murder of George Floyd have had to do not only with people's deep feelings about racism and prejudice in this country, but also with a feeling of being craved by isolation and having a cause that has involved gathering in large groups of people has um, felt crucial and essential in a way that it might not have in more ordinary times. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, your city, New York, is like ours, Portland, Oregon, um, just with so much tension, so much rage, so much bubbling underneath the surface. And I wondered how much of that was the impact on people's mental health during quarantine. Have you actually seen any kind of really good research that's been done in terms of the number of people who are out there protesting, like what their true causes were. So many of them have already lost their jobs. So many of the people in Portland were already living in poverty. So many were already dealing with anxiety and depression. And it was almost like this was the perfect catalyst for them to also talk about the inequities in their lives. I think that's absolutely right. And no, I haven't seen anything reliable, but those protests have been going on for, at this point, whatever it is, a week or 10 days. And yeah. so it's difficult to do research also, I think it will be difficult to do research because I don't think people always know exactly where all of their passion and feeling are coming from. 
They yeah. certainly don't know in the immediate moment when they're feeling it, so they may know in retrospect. I think that the issue of police violence and racism has been an important and urgent issue in the United States for a long time. And I don't want to trivialize the authenticity of people's fighting against it, or even the nobility of people's fighting against it, um, on the basis that it's all really just a manifestation of how, what a hard time they have with COVID. Yeah. But I think that COVID has been part of the fuel that has driven people out into the streets. And I think that process of being in a large group of people with a united good purpose and working together has taken on an aura of fervor, which has been at the very least informed by the isolation that preceded it. Yeah, I've, I've been worried about my friends who had um, underlying conditions, including diabetes, including, you know, heart disease including depression, including anxiety. And you know, the, the messages that we're getting from the government never really attend to people's mental health. They don't talk about the potential worsening of people's depression or anxiety as if it's an illness they need to be concerned about. Um, and yet others are saying this will be the long tail of the pandemic. The mental health crises will be the long tail. How do we begin to get people to understand that mental health implications will be just as costly, if not more, in the long run? Well, in the first place, that's been very specific to our government um, and to, I think, the general incompetence with which it's approached this crisis. Um, there's a perception that somehow the mental health problems affect those who are weak and in some sense worthless and that the physical health problems may be affecting people who are strong and vital. There's a lot of prejudice built into it. When the COVID crisis began in Wuhan, the Chinese government moved thousands and thousands of mental health workers into Wuhan to help people deal with what they knew would be the mental health piece of the problem. Wow. Nothing like that has been undertaken by our federal government, though some state governors have made gestures in that direction. Uh, presumably, and I don't have a crystal ball, but presumably at some point this virus will be brought under control. At mm -hmm. some point we're going to be able to treat it or we're going to be able to vaccinate against it. But I think it's going to take a much longer time uh, to deal with the residual mental health complications. And I see them everywhere. I mean, I see for my father, who is um, nearly 93, um, the presumption that the life that he knew in New York, he'll probably never get back to in the way that he knew it. And he's sad about that, though not depressed. I see in my son, who's 11 years old, the stress and the difficulty of not having direct interaction with his friends when yeah. his friends have been so defining and so crucial. He hasn't um, really seen another child in two and a half months. And I see it in myself and in my contemporaries. I think there is um, altogether a sense that people are fraying around the edges, that mm -hmm. when I talk to people, there's a lot of talk about how difficult things are. The mother of one of my son's friends wrote me the other day and said, I can't get my son to get dressed. He just wants to wear his pajamas all day. I don't know what I should do. Mm -hmm. I think these children are going to grow up with a sort of strong influence from the crisis. As for people who are escalating into really serious illness, I mean, those are all examples of people who are in what I would call the worried well. Mm -hmm. But as for people who are escalating into serious mental illness, serious mental illness tends to be cyclical. And once you have broken into it, once you have had whatever your genetic vulnerability is, 
triggered by external circumstances that are so difficult and traumatic. It can take a lifetime of management. It can be a recurring problem. At the very least, it undermines your sense of your own resilience, and that will have an effect for the rest of your life. And so I think even when we get COVID under control, that the sense of a traumatized population, traumatized by the loss of income, traumatized by the loss of company, traumatized by the loss of the secure sense that our basic way of life is invulnerable, I think that traumatized population is going to be dealing with a sense of fragility for a terribly long time. You have been um, so open about your own decision to um, go ahead and use medication. And one of the things that you said that I thought was just brilliant is that there's this false moral imperative, the treatment of medication is not natural. It's so misguided, it'd be natural for people's teeth to fall out, but nobody is militating against toothpaste. I really want that as a bumper sticker on my car. <laughs> but I'm wondering, because I have noticed um, that many of my friends who, who take medication regularly and do very well on it are not doing well under COVID circumstances. And so what's your advice for people in terms of how to maintain a semblance of your wellness during this time if the medications are not doing what they should have done before? Would you say that this is a time to be talking to your doctor about increasing, adding on? How are you managing it? Well, I would say, first of all, that uh, people have the idea that taking medication is somehow a sign of weakness. And as I said a moment ago, that's been the position, I think, of our government. Um, actually, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of determination to figure out what your vulnerabilities are and to figure mm -hmm. out the best way to address them. So. People who are taking medication should not feel bad about taking medication. They should not feel bad about increasing or supplementing the medications that they're on. And people who don't take medication should bear in mind that getting through this crisis in a state of adequate mental health will leave them better prepared for life on the other side. And mm -hmm. that the supposedly courageous thing of not taking medication may leave them very vulnerable on the other side. I don't think medication is right for everyone. Some people have terrible side effects. Some people don't get good effects. Some people have uh, other ways that they want to address the problem. But I don't think anyone should feel afraid of medication. For people who are on medication and not doing well, those are people who are vulnerable to depression. That's why they're on medication in the first place. Yeah. And depression always uh, represents the uh, the meeting of your vulnerability, genetic or otherwise, and triggering external circumstances. Mm. And the triggering external circumstances are pretty enormous right now in a whole variety of ways. And people should be in touch with their therapist. They should do telemedicine if they can for talk therapy. And mm. they should be talking to who has prescribed their medication and saying, look, I've developed these symptoms I had before I started medication. Should we go up? I've developed these symptoms, which seem to me to be very bizarre and which I've never had before. Is there a medication that will help me address them? And just do whatever you need to do to get through this crisis. And if you want to undo it when the crisis is over, you can undo it when the crisis is over. But in the meanwhile, don't let yourself go to pieces. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help anyone else. You also uh, gave some really beautiful advice about people who say they just want to muscle through these crises um, for uh, a person who said, look, I'm just going to try and see if I can get through the year. And, and you talked about you'll never get 37 back. I want you to talk about why that this, this um, pretty much American belief that we should muscle through these illnesses exists and what we can do to counter that belief. 
Well, we still live in a society in which mental health and physical health are treated very differently. They're treated very differently in ordinary conversation. They're treated very differently by the insurance industry, despite laws that were supposed to change that that have been passed some time ago and have proved largely ineffective or at least somewhat ineffective. Um, there are all kinds of situations in which the stigma attached to mental health remains there. And there is a sense that the, sort of the great American is kind of Daniel Boone and is out exploring and is facing every danger and is coming through everything, um, uh, you know, smelling like a rose. I don't know if Daniel Boone smelled like a rose, but in any event, um, you have the general <laughs> idea. And I think we want people to be strong. And I think that people who are having a difficult time are threatened by the evidence of other people's weakness, that it often attaches mm. to a weakness within those people. But I also think that there is a kind of misapprehension that getting treatment for depression or anxiety or um, any of these other problems is somehow a, a bridge that you cross and then you can never come back, that you've, um, mm. you've gone over the Rubicon and there will be no return. And people mm. think that you become this different kind of person. Mm. You become a person who is reliant on therapy. You become a person who is reliant on medication and you'll never get your integrity back. And I always say to people when they're in that mode of saying, I'm going to tough it out, try taking medication or try doing therapy or try whatever it is that you might want to try. And if it helps, great. And if it doesn't help, you can always go back. And if it helps, but you somehow decide you don't like the way it makes you feel, you know, give it a few months and see what your overall sense of yourself is like. And then you can change your mind. It's not this permanent, um, unsolvable, never again will you be your true self. People somehow think that medication actually changes your personality. And uh, there was a wonderful cartoon some years ago in the New Yorker in which there's a woman in a psychiatrist office saying, doctor, the medication isn't working. I still have feelings. And <laughs> I think we should have feelings and we do have feelings and we have a lot of feelings when we're on medication. And mm. it's not like the medication makes you, um, uh, you lose all of the feelings you have. But I sometimes said to people, you know, when I was really depressed, I felt incredibly sad about having to take a shower. And I felt incredibly overwhelmed by using the telephone. Yeah. And I felt incredibly stressed by having to deal with um, a friend who'd stopped by. Mm -hmm. And now I feel incredibly sad about environmental catastrophe. And I feel incredibly frustrated by the persistence of racism in the United States of America. And I feel traumatized by climate change. And I feel like those are things that are, it's a better locus for one's anxiety and despair and hard feelings and grief. And having your grief available to address the problems of the world or to address, you know, the loss of somebody you love or the people who died or even um, the loss of your job, being available to deal with those things instead of being utterly overwhelmed by pulling yourself out of bed and changing out of your pajamas, that's actually the nature of vitality and vitality is what we're at. Oh my God. Just want that to sit there and let people like be able to process that because you said so much that's so important. I have wondered if the recent polls by the Kaiser Family Foundation that show 50% uh, of Americans now saying they're suffering from some mental health disorder um, to be a positive thing in some way that perhaps people are waking up to, to the essential nature of our interior and how we should be minding it. Do you think there's anything positive about this, Andrew? 
Well, I mean, it's obviously not positive that so many people are having such a hard time. Yeah. You know, my heart goes out to the people who are struggling and suffering. And if we could make their depression remit, it would be fantastic. Yeah. But if people are willing to acknowledge their depression um, or their anxiety or any other form of mental illness or distress that they're experiencing, that really represents significant progress. And uh, I think that it's difficult for the stigma to remain so acute about a condition that's affecting half the people in the country. Yeah. There's a point at which if you're looking at your TV, if you're watching online, if you're paying attention, you know that this is happening to almost everyone. And there's a point at which you have to say, okay, so what is everyone doing about it? And it makes it easier to address getting some form of treatment or some form of attention. That's, that's the upside, but I hope that the mental illness won't persist indefinitely. I hope people will begin to feel better as they return to normal life. Some people will, and for some people, the sort of instability that this has introduced into their understanding of the world is going to be there for a I've often wondered, because you've been so brilliant on the topic of resilience, developing resilience, how you did it in your own, pulling yourself out of your deep, deep depression, um, whether there were some things that you learned during that that you haven't already spoken about, that you haven't really shared. Is there something that would be applicable to people's lives today that might help them? Well, I would say that the first thing is um, uh, to understand that uh, depression does exist very widely. I think it's important to understand that it exists on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important to understand that the opposite of depression is not happiness but vitality, and that a lot of what you experience in depression is not feeling sad, though you may feel sad as well, but feeling overwhelmed and unable to deal with the basic business of your ordinary life. And so if people can be awake to that, then they can say, oh, the fact that I have all this time, but I can't manage to give my kid a bath, that's actually a loss of vitality. And mm -hmm. even if I'm not sitting in my room crying, it's a sign of depression that I should address. If people are able to say, oh, the fact that I feel this level of concern about what's gonna to happen to my job on the far side of what happened has now escalated beyond reasonable concern. I just wish people could be awake to those transitions and understand that most of us are experiencing more sadness and more sense of being um, uncertain about the future because we're in a sad situation and our future is in fact very uncertain. So there is a kind of rational response. But when that rational response affects your ability to do what you need to do to address the concerns that that response pertains to, then you've developed an illness or a situation that requires some address. So yeah. if you just feel generally sad about the state of the world, that's fine. If you feel like you're so sad about the state of the world that it's impeding your ability to improve the state of the world insofar as you can in your own particular and perhaps miniature way, um, then that's the point at which you really have the pressure. I want to talk about, because it's um, Gay Pride Month and this is a wonderful generally time for celebration and parties and parades and obviously that's not going to happen. So how can people still be supportive of one another, still celebrate the gains that have been made and also to provide some hope for activists that are out there still working? 
Well, it is gay pride, and it's been kind of heartbreaking getting all of the messages that I get um, from all the gay organizations that I'm involved with saying, you know, instead of having a parade, we're going to have a Zoom call on Wednesday for 20 minutes. And <laughs> it just feels to me like that's not much of a fiesta. Right. Um, I, think that, uh, I think that it's a difficult time uh, for gay people. More gay people are single. Um, uh, people who... Uh, uh, are in the LGBTQ community are more likely to be impoverished. Um, uh, there's a lot in the media about middle-class white men like me who've managed to get married and live pleasantly and comfortably, but an awful lot of the uh, community, particularly our LGBTQ people of color who are living in situations in which there's very little tolerance for them. Yeah. I think a lot of people are turning in this moment for comfort to religious institutions and the prejudice against gay people in religious institutions remains very um, ingrained and that uh, gay people who are experiencing that kind of prejudice may feel cut off from the reassurances that might come in the belief that there is a God who has a purpose in all of what's going on. There are many ways in which I think it's difficult for gay people. But I have been impressed in this month also at how much evidence I've seen of gay people reaching out to one another, of people who are LGBTQ, um, who are in one way or another trying to come together in groups and to bring about support. And while it is depressing to have Pride Months during the quarantine, it is, um, on the other hand, encouraging that during this quarantine, at least we have Pride Month, and it mm -hmm. gives us an occasion to reach out to one another and to celebrate our ways of life and not to feel as lonely and cut off as many people, especially outside of major, major urban centers, often do. Andrew, I could talk to you forever, but I promise to keep this at half an hour. And I promise I will circle back with you from time to time because honestly, I think in terms of a voice that really, really speaks to people from deep, deep lived experience, but also just your your exhausting research that you do on these topics, it, it, it makes you almost the perfect person as a spokesperson for those of us who would like to see more attention paid to mental health. Thank you again so much for being with us and continued safe quarantine for you and your family. Thank you, Sheila. This has been a lovely conversation. And that was the show. Thanks for your support of Beyond Well. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to your friends. If you want to reach me individually, you can always reach out at Sheila at Beyond Well Media. And I hope you make it a great day. Bora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Bora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.